as our children head out the door to go to Children's Church, we would invite you to remain standing as we are going to read from the... Sorry. I tried to catch you, but I'll... I ask you to remain standing. We're going to stand just for a moment. Don't worry. We don't make you stand through the entire sermon. Um, that, that would be cruel and unusual punishment protected by the Constitution. Um, but we will be in Ezekiel chapter 43. We are finishing our however long series in the book of Ezekiel today. And as we finish up the book of Ezekiel, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 43. And we are going to read the first 12 verses of the chapter And we are standing in honor of the reading of God's word. The word of God says this. Then he, he being the Lord, led me to the gate and the gate facing towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming by the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many rushing waters and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came when he came to destroy the city and the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar and I fell on my face and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east and the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold the glory of the Lord filled the house when I heard one then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me he said to me Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry or by the corpses of their kings when they die. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost when, with only the wall between me and them, And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations, which they have committed. So I have consumed them with my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. If they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structures, its exits, its entrances, all its design, all its statutes, and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe the whole design and all the statutes and do them. This is the law of the house, its entire area on the top of the mountain. All around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Please be seated. Now, if you're looking at your bulletin right now, you're probably thinking, what on earth does this passage have to do with a comeback, let alone a great comeback? And especially if you are joining us for the very first time, you may be thinking to yourself, listen, I love comebacks. 
I love comebacks in sports, whether it's that come-from-behind victory that, that um, we see sometimes where you think your team is down and out, and then slowly they begin to fight their way back into the game. Or maybe it's that come-from-behind season where suddenly everything turns around and they start to make it into the playoffs or wherever they be. For some of us today, we might be thinking of the great story, the Cinderella story in the uh, NCAA brackets of St. Peter's and how this 15 seed is still in the hunt and in the running for an NCAA championship. We know that we love comebacks. Our culture tells us and shows us how much we love comebacks because we read books about them. We watch stories and, and documentaries about comeback teams and comeback seasons. We will re-watch great comeback games and, and remember them and celebrate them. We go to movies and almost every sports movie that has ever existed either has some sort of comeback in it or is the story of a great comeback. We think we like, I mean, if we're honest for our seconds, we like comeback stories so well that we start making sequels to the comeback stories. We have Rocky, Rocky 2, Rocky 3. How many Rockies are there now? 17? I don't know. We have the Mighty Ducks. We have uh, the Karate Kid. We could probably list a thousand more movies and books and stories and television shows that involve somebody who we thought was down and out and gone for good, and yet they rally and make a tremendous comeback. So you ask, Josh, what on earth does this passage in Ezekiel have to do with some great comeback? Well, to answer the question, we need to do a little bit of review. And for those of you that might be joining us the first time, you're probably saying, oh, thank goodness, because I have no idea what's going on. And don't worry, you're in good company, because I don't know what's going on either. Uh, in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given a, vig- a vision of God. And really, we could take this all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel gets his first vision of God, and God appears to him, and, and he sees God, and his throne room is set upon, upon these like really scary-looking creatures that have wheels next to them, and, and, and he sees the throne of God moving about on top of these, these, these scary-looking figures that are called cherubim. And so he knows that, that these cherubim and the wheels that are with them and the expanse that's up above them, that that's the representation of God and his throne room and who God is and where he is. And then we fast forward a few verses to uh, a few chapters to chapter 10, and he sees these, these cherubim and, and, and these wheels all over again. And we read these words. It says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And when the cherubim departed, they lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight and with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of God hovered over them. If we fast forward just one chapter to chapter 11, we see that God makes this promise of the restoration and then and then still does this. It says, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of God hovering over them. And the glory of God went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which was in the east of the city. Ezekiel had witnessed the glory of God depart from the temple, leave the temple complex, leave the city and had ultimately gone to be with God. All of this was to set up everything that we have been studying for the past few months. 
God had warned Israel that if they did not repent and return to them, that ultimately the, glo- ultimately the glory of God would depart from the city, would depart from Jerusalem, and God would bring in Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonian army and utterly destroy all of Jerusalem. The reality is that despite Ezekiel's numerous warnings and Jeremiah, who was living in in Israel at the time, Ezekiel was in, in exile, despite all their warnings and all their pleading and all their wailing and all their crying that the nation of Israel might repent and return to God, they did not. And so where we are at, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, we are at a point in time where Ezekiel is still in exile. Jerusalem, what he would call home, is completely gone and annihilated. And the people have become disenfranchised, they are worried, they are hopeless. And even last week we saw how God began to tell them, don't think that it is over. Because I can do more with nothing than you could do with everything. And this leads us into our passage today. See, God had one more final vision for Ezekiel. And beginning in chapter 40, God comes upon the prophet and carries him off to see something incredible. It is a new city, and within that city is a new temple. Ezekiel has a person with him. It says, even in our passage, that there was a man standing next to him. He has a chaperone who carries a measuring rod, and they begin to go around and measure both the city and the temple and everything in it, and writing down and remembering the the measurements that come with it. Finally, as all of the measurements are taking place, or at least the great majority of them, The Spirit takes Ezekiel and sets him down at the east gate, and he looks to the east. Now remember, from what I just read from chapter 10 and chapter 11, it was through the east gate into the mountains to the east that he had seen the glory of God leave the city. And now he takes him to the same place where he saw the glory of God leave the temple and rest on the city, and then ultimately leave the city, and as he looks, he sees The glory of God coming from the way of the east. He says that his voice was like the sound of many waters and that the earth shone of his glory. It was stuff like he had seen before. It was both great and terrible at the same time. So much so that he fell on his face in both fear and reverence. It says that the glory of the Lord came to the house by the way of the east gate. And the Spirit ultimately lifted him up and took him into the inner court, to the very heart of the temple. And as he stood there, he saw the glory of God had returned and filled up this place that would be the temple. If we go back to verse 40, we recognize that Ezekiel said that he just saw a city. In fact, it says, if you go to Ezekiel 40, it says he saw a structure like a city set on a very high mountain in Israel. I can't help but think that Ezekiel kind of gets caught up into this vision and he, he goes and he, he sets down on this, this mountain and his probably first thought is, this looks familiar. Now by this point, he's been gone for decades. And he sits down on the mountain and he says, this looks like home. 
Do you know, you know that feeling, right? You know that feeling when you're, maybe it's when you're getting close to home. And you're like, oh, this feels like home. Or maybe you don't, you're not from here originally. Maybe you've spent a while in Colorado or Missouri or Illinois or, or somewhere else. And, and, and there comes that point where you get into, you're getting close to home. And you start to think to yourself, ah, oh, this looks like home. For my family, there is a, a we're from Missouri and, and we still very much so love the state. And there is a great feeling in our car when we see the arch. And it's like, ah. You start to see the arch, and then you see the Welcome to Missouri sign, and then you start to see Quick Trip gas stations, and you're like, yeah, we're home. You know what I'm talking about. And that's how Ezekiel was, and he's standing there, and he's, he's, he's looking. He says, this is a, there's a city. This is a city in Israel. And he's like, I know I'm in Israel, but I don't know this city. But it's a city. It looks like a city. It's a city. It looks like it's got a temple in it, but, but it can't be. Because Jerusalem's gone. It's been laying waste. It's been gone. I want you to understand, by this point, it has been gone for 14 years. And so he looks at this city and he says that this is, man, this is something. This miraculous, this, this fantastic city. And so they begin to go and they begin to measure all of these things. And, and then he begins to realize that this is not just some new city in Jerusalem, but rather this is Jerusalem. I am in Jerusalem. I am in a new Jerusalem. And this is a new temple. And the glory of God is returning to the temple. In the midst of this, he looks into the temple. The, God, the, the Spirit sweeps him up and places him right into the very midst of it all. And he is looking at the glory of God filling and within this temple. We don't know for sure what this looks like. We get some description based on the text. We know that it is bright, that it is radiant. We know that it has happened very swiftly. We know that it is loud like the sound of rushing water. We can look to other passages in the Old Testament and we hear about great clouds and, filler and pillars of fire, and as opposed to fillers of pyre, I guess was what I was going to say there, um, and, and all of the things that happen, but he knows what he is seeing. He is seeing the glory of God, that Shekinah glory, filling up and overwhelming the temple place. And from that glory, he hears a voice. And God declares that this new temple is where the throne of God will reside. Now, this gets a little complicated for us today. This is kind of a hard passage for us to understand. Because in one sense, it does relate to the promise that the temple will be rebuilt. We can even go into the scriptures and see how the temple is ultimately rebuilt. We hear about it in the days of Ezra. We know that it was expanded upon in the days of Herod the Great. And yet we also know that the temple was destroyed. And then in 70 AD that, that, that Rome came in and ultimately once again destroyed the temple. And even Jesus himself said that it was going to happen. And so when we look at the passage and we get this notion that there's a, this temple and the glory of God is going to be in it and it's never going to be gone again, we look at that and we go, but wait a minute, that... What, is, what exactly is he talking about? You might just kind of say, well, obviously he's talking about Revelation, right? 
Obviously, we're talking about the end and, and when God brings all things together, but there's actually a problem with that too. Because when we look into the book of Revelation, we realize that when the new heaven and the new earth come, there is no temple. Revelation 21, verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So what is God communicating here? What is happening in this vision? Ezekiel is, is now standing in this temple that currently doesn't exist, but in his vision exists, and he's being told that the, the presence of God, that the glory of God will be in this temple. Well, God is not necessarily making a concrete prediction, prediction here that one day a temple is going to come and it's never going to get tore down and everything's going to be fine and, and, and everything's going to get fixed. Now, there's some truth to that, but rather he is talking about the unique closeness and intimacy that Israel experienced previously will come again. He's saying there was a point in time where the glory of God existed above the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest of holies within the temple complex. And there was a closeness to God that, that Israel experienced that was unlike anything else and that the relationship that Israel had with Yahweh was unlike any relationship of any other nation or any other God that has ever been thought up. And he's telling them that will happen again. And the glory of the Lord will be in your midst. We even see this in the passage when he says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. This is the great comeback that, that they were looking for, that they were hoping for, that they were longing for, that God is promising that what was will be again, that God will dwell among the house of Israel. But here's the cool thing. They thought that when God said that I will dwell among you again, that it meant in a temple, in a room, behind a curtain. But what God was actually communicating to him in this moment is that the glory of God will be in your midst, that I will dwell among you. And that is exactly what he did, only not in a temple, but in flesh. And that God would actually dwell and live and walk and talk among them as one of them, as God in the flesh. 1 John 14 communicates this to us. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about this for just a second. God is communicating in Ezekiel that the glory of God will dwell among the people. And then John says that God, that the word put on flesh and that it was the glory of God dwelling among the people. Ooh. I hate to tell you this, but that's way better than a building's ever going to be. That is way cooler than a temple could ever hope to be. No holy of holy, no entertainment, but God dwelled with them, Emmanuel. 
And as we look into the text, it gets even better than this, because not only does God and the glory of God put on flesh and dwell among us, but ultimately after he is, he is betrayed and he is crucified and he is buried and he resurrects and he ascends to go be the Father, then God sends his spirit to not just dwell among us, walking among us, eating among us, talking among us, but God sends his spirit to dwell inside of us if we are in Christ. See, not only is God saying that what was will be again, but God is saying what is coming is far better than anything you've ever experienced before. This is where the promise really comes to reality because if indeed you are in Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit, that means God dwells in you and he will not leave you nor depart you. We mess up. We do. I mess up. I sin. I make mistakes. Some of those sins seem to be ongoing, and I praise the Lord I have daughters to point those things out to me. But the good news is, is never once has God said, you know what, I'm going to move my spirit out of your heart and I'm going to put him in your ear. Now don't make, make no mistakes, the spirit that has my ear quite often. And he says, you know what, you're still not getting it right, I'm going to take the spirit out of your ear and I'm going to put it on top of your bald head. And then finally he goes, you know what, Josh, you still ain't getting it right, so I'm going to take my spirit back. He doesn't do that. But rather, the scriptures say that the Spirit is my seal until the day of redemption. And I know I'm going to mess up, and I know I'm going to make mistakes, but I also know that God has saved me. And when God saved me, it made me saved. And I am His. And so this promise that He will dwell and that He will not leave is a promise that we experience when we come to know Christ. And his spirit fills us up. And he makes us a new creation. And in that day, rest assured, if you are with us today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in the day that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ with all your heart and you believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not only be saved, but you will be his. And you will be given the spirit, the spirit of God to dwell inside of you so that you will never not be his again. This great comeback is promised that God would return to Israel, that, he, that they, would once, they would once again experience this intimacy with God. But we have to ask the question, how do we receive this promise? How did they receive this promise? And thankfully, God tells us that very thing. You got you to gotta love it. Ezekiel's having this vision. He is currently standing in the doorway. This guy with a big measuring stick is standing next to him. He is looking at him, beholding the glory of God. And then from that, God begins to tell him, this is what that vision means. He says this in verse 10, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. See, God wants the people to hear about what God has in store for them so that they might recognize their sin and feel sorrow over it. He wants them to see and, and experience, like, listen, you think you're down and out. You think the game is over. You think there's nothing left. You think Jerusalem is gone. The temple is gone. So therefore, I must be gone. But listen, I want to show you something. I already have a plan. I already know what can be again. I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. But you need to turn to me. 
You need to listen to what I've said from the very, very beginning. He is practically pleading with the people of Israel to say, You are not abandoned, but turn to me. This is not, I want you to understand this, this is not that standard guilt trip that we often get get associated to the church. This is not God saying, well, I just want you to feel bad for feeling bad's sake. We get a bad rap as the church because we talk about things like sin. And, we, and, and I, hear, I can't tell me how many times I hear from people who, you, like, usually what they say is, I grew up going to church, which I think is an accurate way of saying that because they didn't grow up following Jesus, they grew up going to church. And they said, and I didn't like all the guilt, and I didn't like all the shame, and so I quit going. That's not the point of this. In verse 10, when he says, I want them to hear all this so that they will be ashamed of their iniquity, it's not because he just wants them to feel bad, but God is trying to move the people from this shame and sorrow to repentance and forgiveness and a renewed relationship with him. Don't stop at the shame and sorrow. That's That's not godly, that's worldly. In fact, Paul wrote about this to the church in Corinth. He says, I now rejoice, not that you may be sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Sometimes God makes us experience hard, even straight up bad things in our life so that we might realize our need for God, how far we've gotten away from God, and that we might repent and return to God. Oftentimes, God gives us a taste of good things also, like in this passage, because he wants us to recognize that we can trust him and that he has good for us in store, and that we might abide with him. This is kind of the interesting thing of this passage. He's saying, show them what could be, so that they'll get back here. And yeah, sometimes we go through hard things, but sometimes, like maybe hopefully today, you start to experience the good. And you start to be reminded of the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the fellowship and the transformation that maybe you once felt and you say, I need this. And so I'm going to return to God. This hits me personally because that's exactly what happened to me. In my life, when I had walked away from God, it wasn't that I had stopped believing, but I certainly started living for myself. And one day I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was like, you know what? I kind of got to thinking about it. And I was like, you know, how did things go so wrong? And a little thought popped in my head and it said, you know what? You quit going to church. You quit making God a priority. You start doing your own thing and this is where you got. So are you ready to make a change? And I was like, yeah, kind of. So the, next, so the next morning I got up and I went to church and when I was at that church and we were singing, worship, worshiping and praising God and I was hearing the message and I was sitting next to my mom and the whole time I was just bawling. And no one wants to see a 20-year-old man, I know that the term 20-year-old man is funny for some of you guys, but that's okay. 
and just sitting there with just tears going down my face and snot bubbles and all those things. As God just moved me, I was like, and when it was all said and done, all I remember thinking is, this is exactly what I need. And I need to do this for real. That's, what, that's the message of God to the Israelites in exile in this passage. Look at the plan. Look at what I have in store for you. Look at the fellowship. Look at the closeness. Look at the return to what, what was. Do you remember it? Do you long for it? Does it stir up something in your heart? You are not too far gone. But the closeness and the intimacy that you once experienced with God can be again. And return to me. David said it this way after he sinned. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's in the Psalms. And he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you guys are one step, one decision, one turning away from the joy of salvation in Christ being returned. One of the things as I studied this that was brought forward that I thought was just so unbelievably interesting is it said that in, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, it took a long time for the glory of God to leave. That God kept patiently waiting for Israel to kind of figure out things are wrong, we need to get back to God. But in this passage, it comes like a rush. And isn't that just the forgiveness of God? God is slow to anger, constantly calling to us, pulling us, and, and, and even pleading with us, imploring with us to come back to him. But in the moment that we return to him, he comes in like a rushing wave of grace and forgiveness, ready to restore you back to that place. Regardless, God is letting them know that his covenant faithfulness is still in effect. See, God has not quit being God. And his character has not changed. But even in fact, we can go all the way back to, to um, the Old Testament and we can look at the very words of Moses. Listen to this. This is in Deuteronomy. He says, So it shall be, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in the nations where your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God, and that you obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I have commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the people where the Lord your God has scattered you. God had promised this thousands of years before it took place. And even in this vision, God is telling the nation of Israel, the things that I promised you through Moses are still true today. And I've got good news, brothers and sisters. That message still hasn't changed. The message of forgiveness through repentance and turning back to God, it hasn't changed. Right now, you may be with us today and you may be far from God. 
You feel like he's a thousand miles away. You may only be here because someone drug you here. I want you to understand that God is calling you to himself. He made a way so that you might know him right now. That you might return to him and that you might be filled with his spirit and with his presence. That you can walk with him and enjoy him for all eternity. This way is Jesus Christ. He lived, died, and rose from the grave three days later to bear the price of our sin and our shame. The Bible says that if we will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God will most certainly save you. He will justify you, making you right between him and God, and he will restore you to that right relationship. The good news is, is we don't need temples or sacrifices or all the different things in order to be right with God because Jesus became all those things on our behalf. See, the fullness of the promise that we read in this passage is not that the glory of God will return in a temple, but that the glory of God will return to mankind. And he will do that through Christ Jesus. And if you place your hope and faith in him, you will become that temple because the spirit will dwell inside of you. For some of us today, I know that that means that we need to come to the Lord. We need to repent. We need to, to ask God for forgiveness for the ways that we have strayed and that we need to, to uh, rededicate, to reignite that relationship with the Lord and begin to walk with him again for the first time. For others of you, that means surrendering to God for the first time. To recognize your sin and recognize that you are not too far gone. And crying out to the Lord and saying, please save a sinner like me. That I believe in your son. That I believe in Jesus. That he did what I could not do to die the death that I deserved. And that he rose from the grave. That I believe these things. And that I want to make him the Lord of my life. that's your prayer today then we would invite you to come we would love to have a conversation with you about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and what to do after that and how this church might come alongside you to see you grow into the fullness of Christ let us pray together our gracious God and King we come before you now God and we know that you are good and Lord, that you have not abandoned us to ourselves. And Lord, even though we are sinners who desperately need your salvation, Lord, that you did, not, you did not give up on us, that you did not say that we were a lost cause, but you sent your one and only Son. That you put on flesh, that you dwelled among us, that you lived the perfect life, not to prove it could be done, but to help us realize that it couldn't. And that God, you ultimately went to the cross and bared the full punishment of our sin. That you died, you were buried, and that you rose again three days later so that we might be made alive through him. God, for some of us here today, that, mean, that, that means so much for us. 
And we need to, to come back to that and come back to that relationship and begin to walk with you like we did before. But God, some of us need to receive this for the first time today. Lord, I truly believe that, that you work and that even now your spirit is, is, is moving through this place and that you are convicting those that need to be convicted, that you are bringing about transformation in ways that we cannot possibly know. But God, it is my hope and prayer that, that if there's anyone here today that needs to give their lives to Jesus, Lord, that they would say these words, that they would look to you and you'd, they'd say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And that I, I, I have not lived up to your standard. But God, I believe that you sent your son. That he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the grave three days later to save me. And God, I want to make him the Lord of my life today. That he might save me from my sins and begin to, uh, to make me recover, allow me to recover and re pursue your design for my life. Lord, I pray that you will fill me with your spirit. And that you will never leave me nor forsake me. And that you will guide me until I go to be with you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.